Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Two Footer Tackle podcast. I'm your host, Aristotle Tarkos, and unlike last week, I am slightly more more jovial because my sporting teams decided not to break my heart this week, so that's a good start. But before we get into everything, I hope everyone has had a lovely week since we last spoke. I hope everyone's had a fantastic week. I hope all their sporting teams did them a solid, um, except the ones that I don't like, which is slowly dwindling now because I'm now because I've realised that my sporting clubs just don't like me. So I'm just slowly becoming more apathetic towards sport and just kind of enjoying it from a neutral perspective, which is a lot less stressful. I'll tell you that for free. Um, supporting well, like watching sport, any sport, tennis, rugby, croquet, lacrosse. Um, soccer or football, footy, any sport. Watching it from a neutral perspective is is ten times better. I'll tell you that for free. But um, yeah, there was a lot, quite a bit to get through. Quite a bit to get through as we will touch on. This actually got a lot of a lot of talking points. We're going to speak about the Arsenal documentary, which has which the final episodes were released at the back end of last week. So we'll touch on that. We'll touch on the UCL draw, not the, not the Europa League or the Conference League, because to be frank, I don't care. Um, we'll touch on the UCL draw. We'll touch on a couple of transfers that have happened or are going to happen or have all been but or have all but been confirmed. Um, for final to Chelsea, Anthony to United and Alexander Isaac to Newcastle. There was two 9-0 results over the weekend, which, I mean, that has baffled me how that's happened. Like... I just don't get it. Um, and then we'll touch on the Paul Pogba situation, which is quite bizarre. Who went into footed, of course, and then we'll preview the week. But before I start, I implore you all to follow the podcast on all the socials, Two Foot Tackle Podcast on TikTok and Instagram, Twitter, TFT, 2FT Pod, sorry, on Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. Like the podcast um, notification bell so you don't miss any clips or any episodes. And all the audio platforms: Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. Give it a five star. It helps the podcast grow. Uh, helps the podcast grow, and it makes me feel very good whenever I see a, a new like or, or a five star rating. It's very it warms the heart. So that would be very much appreciated. And as you could probably have to- have realized, I have changed the release time in terms of the podcast normally, or normally I should say, maybe in the past, it was 9am Melbourne time, and I've thought, stuff that, let's go 6pm Melbourne time on Tuesday, and I think I'm going to stick with that from now on. Let me know your thoughts about that, if I should go back to 9, if I should go earlier, maybe 7am or 5pm or whoever. I just, I like the 6pm, I, I don't mind it. I feel like it, it gets a good balance between certain factors that I look at, so um, yeah, I'm going to stick with 6pm for now. It could change. I'm very impatient, so it, it really could change very quickly. But we'll just have to wait and see. So let's let's just. I was going to mention something. I forgot. Actually, yes. Follow me on Twitter. Right. So I'm three at the time of recording. I'm three followers away from 400 followers on Twitter. So at Ari underscore Y underscore Stammer, or just search up Ari Stamatakos on Twitter, it will come up. Chuck me a follow. Why not? I I don't think I promote myself enough. Um, on this podcast, so yeah, considering that it is mine, um, yeah, Chuck's follow would be greatly appreciated once again, and let's see if we can, let's see if we can tick over 400, that would be very nice, but let's, enough of my dribble, enough of my rubbish, let's crack in, crack on even, crack into the episode, and let's actually start with, let's start with the Arsenal Till I Die, that's not even the name of the fucking documentary, the Arsenal All or Nothing documentary, now, 
I'll give my overall thoughts um, about it after I after I finish what I was what I'm going to speak about. But it came out. Everyone was gonna. Everyone was waiting um, in angst to to watch his to watch his documentary because, considering the season that Arsenal had last year, it was bound to be entertaining. And I thought the best way to look at it is by looking at five things. So, by looking at five things we learnt. We learnt. I learnt five things that I took out of Arsenal All or Nothing documentary. So. The All or Nothing documentary, five things I learned. Now, number one has to be Mikel Arteta is a bizarre genius. I think he's probably the best way to describe him. He's, we all know, we all saw, um, if you'd watched the documentary, we saw on Twitter the whole heart and the brain holding hands and the little drawings that he does and these other little quirks, like with the light bulb, plugging it in, saying like a connected team and whatever. Now, a lot of people... Maybe not making fun of it or mocking it, but I really I watch a documentary and have and have come out of it with a very very positive opinion on Mikel Arteta. I think the way he conducts himself, I think his philosophies are very good, and I I every time he spoke and every time he he explained something, I felt confident in what he was going to say and that I felt understanding of what he was going to say. So yeah, I feel like Mikel Arteta is a like a bizarre genius. I think he's probably the best way. I I, I put that in my run chat. I feel like that's the best way to describe it. He's there's just something about him that just ticks. That just that like ticks for me. And he while he's not like the most proven manager, I think tactically he's very good. I think we can all see we all saw that tactically he lives and breathes football, right? So. Tactically, he's gonna be tactically he's gonna be on point. Like he's the way he sees the game, the way he approaches the game, his philosophy around there's very positive, very attacking, very possession heavy, and very like exciting, eccentric. And we've seen it with Arsenal already this season. They've they've played four one four and in quite blistering fashion in most games as well. So we've started to see that that kind of philosophy that Arteta was trying to implement last year um, has really come to the fore this year. So. Um, yeah, Mikel Arteta, I really, I, 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 if Arsenal fans watched that documentary and didn't come out of it 10 times more confident in, in their manager, I'd be surprised because he made a massive case for himself as being one of the best up and coming managers in Europe. And yeah, what, what really struck it, struck to me, struck hit to him about me. No, that's not it. Struck me about him. Sure. Um, was not only his tactical management, but his man management as well. I think he... Obviously, he can speak a couple of different languages. He speaks Spanish and, and English, obviously, very fluently. So he can able, he's able to really connect with some of the Brazilian players in the squad, with some of the um, Portuguese players in the squad. So with that, and also with his with his relatability, of course, the fact that he's young, only retired a couple of maybe not not a couple of years ago, but he didn't he wasn't that long ago retired. So he is relatable to the players, especially some of the older players like Granada Xhaka and. Cedric and Lacazette, he they can really kind of relate to him in a sense, and he also understands what the likes of Saka and Smith Rowe and even the likes of of um Sambula Conga, who we saw upset that he wasn't playing, one of the few players upset that they weren't playing, which I'll touch on a little bit later. Um, he's able to relate to them and really kind of nurture them and understand where they're coming from because he was in that position not long ago in football. While it has changed um, since Arteta was running around in the in the mid to late um, or early 2010s, late 2000s, he 
it's still kind of similar, so he can relate to the players, which I think helps him and will hold him in good stead for for a long time. So yeah, that was my number, like the number one thing I learned was that Mikel Arteta is this bizarre genius that even his quirks and his kind of personality traits aren't traditional. They just seem to work somehow. And yeah, I think that's probably the best, the best way to describe Arteta. So that was number one. Now, number two is that Rob Holding is too happy. He needs to be more angry. Now, for those who saw the the episode where it was about him, I think it was one of the last two episodes, he's just too happy. He's too happy not to when he's not playing, which um, is, is like, yeah, who cares? He's happy, which is good. You want your players to be happy. But even the producer um, said at one point, hey, you're the most happiest player in the squad. And while that's good, and, and this is will be something I'll touch on a little bit in depth um, in my last point, um, while it's good that he's happy, which is great, he needs to be angry. He's a, he's a centre-back who has been in and out of favour at that club, has been at Arsenal for fucking however long, and has never really established a first-team place. Is he content with being a squad player? I don't think a footballer should be content with being a squad player. I think a footballer, especially playing for Arsenal, should drive themselves to be the best player in their position at the club. So for the fact that he's just constantly happy all the time, I'm sure he's living his best life, and I'm sure he's 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 content with playing for Arsenal, earning tens of thousands of pounds a week, doing what he loves, and can't really complain. I feel like there's a level of duty there for him to kind of take it, maybe not more seriously, but kind of demand more from himself and demand more from his team and demand more from his manager to want to play him. Because it, it is kind of just the same thing over and over again with withholding is like he plays, gets dropped, and then from what he, and then plays again, someone's injured, he plays, then he gets dropped, then he makes substitute appearances in the eighty fifth minute every game, and then he gets dropped, and then he starts because someone's injured. It's this rotating cycle with Rob Holding ever since he came into Arsenal pretty much. And he's just content with that. I don't really understand it. I feel like for Arsenal playing for Arsenal Football Club, you need to be motivated to be the best player in your in your position and be angry at the fact that you're not starting. So I'll touch on this a little bit later on in my last point. But yeah, Rob Holding, too happy. Although if I was earning 30 grand a week playing for Arsenal and not really having to do a whole lot, I'd be happy as well, in all fairness. But let's move on to point three. And the third thing I learned from Arsenal's documentary is that Aaron Ramsdale is the future. Now, Arsenal need to be very careful with Ramsdale and they need to hold on to him as much as they can, because he will be, he's the future for them, he's a future England goalkeeper in my opinion, and he's probably the future Arsenal captain, because what I saw in the documentary I absolutely adored from Aaron Ramsdale, now we all know he wasn't in favour, wasn't starting at the start of last year, came in after the Man City game, or after the Chelsea game, and has pretty much been the first choice, or has been the first choice ever since then, and what really struck me, I've said that twice and I haven't actually said it properly. What I noticed from um from Aaron Ramsdale was I can't remember what game it was. It might have been against Everton or I can't remember what game it was. But he's take Arsenal one two one comfortable comfortable win no problems. But he was fuming in the dressing room that he copped the goal and didn't didn't keep his clean sheet. Now I just spoke about Rob Holding being too happy and being too content with his position. 
that shows the opposite for Aaron Ramsdale. That shows that he wants perfection. And while it's a it's a tight line, you need to you need to walk when being a perfectionist and being that player that is motivated by success and needs to be perfect every single time. I think Ramsdale was treating that really well. And what I saw from him was this motivation, this tenacity, this willing to do anything to be per- perfect. And when he's not perfect. Even if he's a nine out of ten when he when he thinks he should be a ten out of ten, that will get to him and that will drive him to be better and that will drive not only him to be better but that will drive his team to be better because they're looking at Ramsdale who yeah Arsenal won five one but Ramsdale copped the goal and he's angry that he didn't keep his clean sheet and he's angry he's frustrated he wants to get better why can't we do that I think that's what shocked to me about Ramsdale the most and I we all know he's he's. Um, exploits with his feet. We all know he's a pretty good ball-playing um, goalkeeper. The modern day kind of requires him to be that. And we all know his shot-stopping is very good at times. So, um, yeah, I feel like if he can get... If he can just touch up a little bit of his goalkeeping game and just be a little bit more reliable, I think he will be definitely the future Arsenal goalkeeper for a decade, probably the next Arsenal captain. And... Almost, most definitely the next England goalkeeper who probably should be starting at the World Cup. Um, I know he's got some stiff competition with Nick Pope and Jordan Pickford will always be around that squad. But yeah, definitely on the plane and probably should be starting for or in Qatar for England because what I saw in that documentary was very, very pleasing and very and kind of reassured the fact that it's not a persona. It's not a oh, he, he looks like he cares on the pitch, whereas behind closed doors, he doesn't really give a fuck. It's not a persona. It's who he truly is, and he really wants to be the best, and he really wants to show everyone that he is a v- elite goalkeeper, and he's willing to go to no end to um prove that. Tenacious, motivated, angry, like willing to do everything to win and willing to do everything to be perfect. And that's the mentality you need to have to succeed at at the highest level. And that's the mentality that Arsenal players need to have to get Arsenal back to where they are. And like I said, I spoke about that with Rob Holding. I'll speak about this a little bit later on in my last point. Some players don't have that same motivation and that will cost them. So yeah, that was the third thing I learned. Now, as I have a quick, quick sip of water. Yeah. Right, okay. Number four, the penultimate thing I learned, and we all we were all waiting in angst to watch this episode. We were all waiting in angst to see how this developed. We all know Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. We all know the scenario around him leaving Arsenal or getting pretty much demoted from the first team squad, then leaving Arsenal in January. And my number, my the fourth thing I learned rather is that Pierre Emerick Aubameyang is a spoiled brat. Now, we all know what had happened from ex- from an external perspective. We didn't know what happened from an internal perspective, and we got a glimpse of that in the documentary. And basically, he just left them high and dry. He was the club captain. He was the, the talisman of that squad. And for him to go AWOL and to just be completely disregarding of the first team and really be a selfish footballer really was concerning to see. And also... And also kind of validated a lot of thoughts that I know I had and a lot of people had about him that he's just this show pony, all about himself, self-righteous person, this pretentious person in a sense. And with all due respect to Aubameyang because he's a fantastic footballer, he does not have that mental side of the game, just doesn't. And Arteta was asked 
what when was the moment um the producer asked him something along the lines of when was the moment you knew you had to drop Aubameyang from the squad and he was like from the moment I looked in looked at his eyes and looked that he didn't care anymore to have that be so transparent and for that to be, for for your feelings to be so transparent that your manager doesn't really need to have a conversation with you he can just look at you and look at how unmotivated you are and how much you don't care not good not good and He's over 30 years old, but he's acting like a child. Um, and yeah, we all, we, every, I think a lot of people kind of were looking at, oh, Arteta need, just needs to play Aubameyang, needs to play him. He was their top goal scorer of the year before. I know we hadn't been playing well and like, oh, this will cost them top four and whatever. But I feel like this, this documentary kind of validated the points of, no, Arteta was well within his rights to drop Aubameyang and was well within his rights to really show no mercy and be like, all right, you don't want to be here, fuck off. And I think that's great. It shows that he's not a pushover. It shows that he, whatever he says goes, which I think is great. I think is the perfect thing that that um that needs to be happening in that squad because it's a lot of young players. It's a lot of players who might have an ego on them it could, because they're so young and playing at such a good high-level team and earning a lot of money. There might be a little bit of ego um, creeping into that squad. So for Arteta to stamp, stamp his authority and say, this Club captain, top goal scorer, pretty much the best striker we've had ever since Thierry Henry. Get out. You're not welcome. If you don't want to play, like, if you don't want to play for the team, get out. So that was another reason why um, my number one point was what it was. Because Arteta, yeah, I came, out, I came out of the documentary with a lot of positive thoughts on Arteta and a lot of negative thoughts of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. So that's the number four. And the fifth and final thing that I learned from the Arsenal all or nothing documentary is that there is not enough competitiveness in that squad, which ultimately led to their downfall. Now, what I mean by that is, well, I spoke about it with old, with Rob Holding, Mohamed Aldeni, Alexander Lacazette. They don't care enough. That's what it boiled down to. They just did not care enough. And you saw Holding; he was he was content with sitting on the bench. Alneni, there was a um, a period in the documentary where he was like, "Oh, if I don't play, I don't play. It is what it is." And even Lacazette, we didn't really hear a lot about him, but he got dropped for Eddie and Ketia and wasn't really shown to be putting in the extra yards, putting in the hard yards to kind of um, right that wrong. He became snappy. We saw that fight in training, which was caused by him. He became snappy. He became angry at the fact that he wasn't starting, but not in a good way. He wasn't motivated by it. He was just soppy and moping around. So that ultimately led to their downfall because... When you have a squad that is challenging for top four, while the starting 11 is important, the seven on the bench and the four, five, six players, seven players that aren't in the squad, they're arguably more important because they drive standards. It's all it's all well and good for your first 11 to be exceptional. If, you're, if the rest of your squad don't care and aren't pushing those players to get better, you're going to stagnate and you're going to plateau. That's what we saw with Arsenal. They got to a level where they were comfortable. The players didn't really care. They thought they would just coast because they, they their spot was secured in a sense. And it ended up leading to their downfall. We saw Lacazette was just playing, didn't really didn't want to improve, wasn't really doing a whole lot, and it ended up getting dropped. Right? And then you saw with with El Neni, right? We saw how we saw that last year the midfield mix for Arsenal wasn't quite there. That's because, like we all know, I know El Neni isn't this gifted footballer, but he wasn't driving standards. He wasn't driving Xhaka to get better. 
It wasn't driving these players to really improve themselves. So that's, in my opinion, what cost Arsenal top four. And after after watching that, it was this lack of... After watching the documentary, it kind of validated my thoughts about it. This lack of competitiveness and this lack of want to win and this lack of, oh, I'm going to do everything to win and I'm going to beat... I'm going to be the best player in my position. I don't care if you've just signed a midfielder for £100 million. I'm going to be the best midfielder in this in this team. There's no, there's none of that in that squad, and that, in my opinion, ultimately led to their downfall. So yeah, those were the five things that I came out of the documentary with. If I were to give my overall thoughts now, I think it's, I think it was a good documentary. I liked it. I thought the production quality was good. I thought we were, we saw the things that we wanted to see. Was it a little bit of a propaganda piece? Yes, because that's what all these documentaries are. Um, you're never going to get an you're never going to get an honest documentary like that is produced in the same way that that these are produced. We saw with the Tottenham one, pretty much a a Jose Mourinho um, shrine in a sense. Um, but yeah, it was a good documentary. I enjoyed it. I would have liked to see it come out all in one go, though, so I didn't have to wait fucking four weeks for it for the whole series to finish. But I enjoyed it. I hope they do another one. I think they are doing another one. I know they did one with City, so I should probably go and watch that. I watched the Tottenham one not long ago. Watch the, of course, watch the Arsenal one just then. I know they've got some, I think they've got one on Juventus. I think they've got an Atletico Madrid, uh, Atletico Madrid documentary as well, so probably should go check those out as well. But, yeah, I enjoyed the doco. Other things that I learnt from it, um, Colney is a great training facility. Um, some of the shit that happened was there, I was like, what the fuck? Um, kind of like, okay, like, yeah, weird. Um, the injury issue was quite bizarre. Like, it seemed that they just were getting injured from nowhere, which was weird. Obviously, we saw Ben White was meant to miss only one game. I can't remember. It was like pretty late on in the season. Rob Holding was meant... I mean, Ben White was meant to miss one game, and then he missed two, and then he missed like three, I think. So, I don't know what's happening there. But, um, yeah, we saw an insight into the Cronkies. Well, Josh, not Stan. Um, Edu was, I thought, was presented pretty well. Arteta, like I said, presented pretty well. Um, Saka, Smith-Rowe, the young players were presented well. And Ketia was presented well. I thought Granit Xhaka was presented pretty well. Um, yeah, I thought I thought a lot of players were presented well um, in, in that docker. They did well to kind of um, to kind of protect their own players in a sense. But yeah, I know. Yeah, it was a it was a um, what what you call propaganda piece to an extent because you never it's never not going to be that. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty good doco. I urge everyone to go watch it, go binge it. All the episodes are out, eight episodes, um, 40 minutes, 45 minutes each. Um, yeah, very good documentary, very um, interesting and very insightful. I hope they do one about Chelsea. Um, I, I think they, they have booked one for, for another club. I just want to double check that I'm either A, not making this up or um, what team it was. It was, it is, if I can find it. They've done a lot. They've done one on New Zealand, on the All Blacks. There you go. Um, Newcastle, here we go. Newcastle in line to feature in, in um, Amazon's All or Nothing documentary series. That'll, that'll be a good watch. If that happens, I'm assuming that'll happen next season. Um, I don't think it'll happen this season that we've just started. If it happens next season, it could be a Newcastle team challenging for top four and getting new signings in and all this stuff. So that would be good to see. But yeah, 
those are my overall thoughts on the documentary as we move on to our second second I knew this was going to be a lot. I've still got quite a bit to get through, so let's hurry this up a little bit. It was the UCL draw over the weekend. Um, there's been eight, obviously eight groups were announced. As we, let's go through the groups one by one before I give the overall thoughts. Group A, probably the best group, I reckon, Group A, in terms of like just vibes. Um, Ajax, Liverpool, Napoli, Rangers, adore that group. Group B, Porto, Atletico, Atletico Madrid, Bayern Leverkusen, and Club Bruges. That's going to be a pretty competitive group. Group C, Bayern, Inter Milan, Barcelona, and I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce that team's name because I know it's not... So what I've done is I've just taken the graphic from the Champions League kind of like Twitter thing, and I don't know what club that is, but it's... It's I, I'm not even going to attempt to try and guess where it's from because I just don't want to do that. Um, group D, Frankfurt, Tot- Tottenham, Sporting, and Marseille. That would be a pretty good group as well. Group E, Milan, AC Milan, um, Chelsea, Salzburg, Dynamo, Zagreb. Group F, Real Madrid, Leipzig, Shakhtar, Celtic. Group G, City, Sevilla, Dortmund, Copenhagen. And Group H, Paris Saint-Germain, Juventus, Benfica, and Mac. Maccabi Haifa, Haifa, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, so yeah, there you go. I don't really consider any group a group of death. Probably Group C is the closest thing to a group of death by in Barca, Inter, and that team that I'm not going to um, even attempt to pronounce. Um, so yeah, that's probably the group of death. Although maybe the the Champions League is going to throw up all sorts of curveballs, so it's probably going to end up being. Group A, the group of death, which is probably the best group in terms of you've got Ajax, Napoli, Liverpool, Rangers, like the 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 limbs, the away days are going to be great. Some of the games are going to be fantastic. I can't wait to see to see Rangers go go to Anfield, go to Amsterdam, and really really test some of the um some of the best sides in Europe. So um yeah, I, by the way, I've just looked at that team in Group C. Not even going to attempt to pronounce it because I know I'll be wrong. So yeah, um let's go through each group. Give thoughts. Group A, I think Liverpool finished top of the group. I just think Liverpool on European nights they are a force. As I've just opened Football Manager on my laptop, so I've misclicked there, and I've just opened Football Manager on my laptop, so I can guarantee you the frame rate would have a hundred percent gone down. Oh no, it hasn't. It hasn't gone down. Well, there you go. So, as I close for one, I do on my laptop. But yeah, Group A, Liverpool. Um, Liverpool will go through. I don't see them dropping. Um, they'll probably drop points, but I don't see them capitulating. And I think the the nine nil win has kind of kickstarted their has kind of kickstarted their um, their season in a sense. I feel like it starts now. So um, yeah, Liverpool finished top. Now second place is quite competitive quite competitive because we all know Napoli um, and Liverpool have some history in the Champions League. We all know that that group stage match a couple of years ago as a close football manager because I'm an idiot. Um, apologies if the frame rate, frame rate issues had gone down in that past minute. I apologise. Um, so yeah, Liverpool top, second place. We'd love to see Rangers get through. We'd love to see Rangers get through. Is probably going to be... I reckon Ajax are a good shout. They've just lost Anthony, um, which, which will hurt them, which we'll touch on later. Um... I'm, I'll go Napoli. I'll play it safe and go Napoli. I think it'll be Liverpool, Napoli 1-2. And fuck it. Rangers Rangers will make Europa and Ajax. See, that's so stiff because I think Ajax will do really well. 
Gee, that, that group is going to be tight. That group is going to be very, very tight. I'll back Rangers to make Europa. I'll just back them. All right, Group B. Group B, very exciting group. You'd think Atletico Madrid will top it um, based off just quality purposes and just experience. That They know what to do in on the European stage. So I'll go Atletico top. I'll, I'm actually, I'll say Porto um, will finish second. I just rate their squad a little bit higher than I rate Leverkusen's. Club Bruges, I just, I just don't think are up to the level. Group C, I think it'll be Bayern top. At a canter, by the way. I think Bayern Munich are going to, get, are going to be very dangerous this Champions League, um, this Champions League campaign. I, it wouldn't surprise me if Bayern win all of their games, put it that way, in that group. And you'd think Barcelona, right? You'd think Barcelona would have to get it done, but Inter are no slouch, so I could really see Barcelona dropping in the Europa League for a second consecutive year, which would be fucking just ridiculous. Um, but no, I'll go Bayern 1, Barca 2. Surely, right? Surely. Group D, Frankfurt, Tottenham, Sporting, Marseille. Very competitive group. Very competitive group, of course. Frankfurt um, won the Europa League, thus making them the, the number one or in pot one. So I think I think Frankfurt will top the group and I think Spurs will finish second. I just I just think Conte... The reason I say that is I think Conte will put a lot of emphasis on the league rather than the Champions League. Um, and some cups, and, and try to get the trophy. I think the Champions League is like the least likely trophy that they'll get. So, um, yeah, I think they'll they'll put a lot of emphasis into like the League Cup and the FA Cup to win those competitions. So I feel... And the Premier League, of course. So I feel that they'll finish second in that group. But it will be like... It will be comfortable. I don't I, Like, I, I, I see them finishing second, but like by a point or goal difference or whatever. But yeah, Frankfurt won. Tottenham second. Group E, Chelsea, Milan, Zagreb, and Salzburg. It's Milan, Chelsea, one, two. I think I just... I'll, I'll back Chelsea to finish finish first in that group. You just think, based on the quality um, that they've got. And Milan, mate, no no um, no slouches. I've actually got their top underneath this hoodie here. But... um. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Chelsea top, AC Milan second. Group F: Real Madrid, Celtic, Shakhtar, Leipzig. Boy, I want Ange Postecoglou to go over to the Bernabeu and take a scout. And while I, while I, while I don't think that'll happen, I'm backing Ange's boys to get through the group. I'm gonna go Real Madrid first, Celtic second because. They won 9-0 on the weekend, which once again I'll touch on, and it was scintillating football. I know it was against Dundee United and not against Real Madrid, right? It was Steve Fletcher up top, not Karim Benzema, right? But I just back. I back Ange. There's something about him, something about that team. I back him. I'm going to go with Celtic second, Real Madrid top. Group G, City, Sevilla, Dortmund, Copenhagen. Copenhagen, obviously, with Matt Ryan in goal, so he'll be coming up against some good opposition in that group. I think City will, will top it pretty comfortably, and I'll go with Dortmund second. Actually, Sevilla second. I I think Sevilla will, will, will get the job done over Dortmund in their two games, which will see them, which will carry them through into the round of 16, and Group G, Paris Saint-Germain, Juventus, Benfica, and McCabe Haif. I think that's how you pronounce it. I apologise. Um... Yeah, PSG um, top, Juventus second, Atacanta. I don't really see um, any other outcome. As I give some more predictions, I think the final. Apologies if this final doesn't like can't happen um, because of like 
a draw. Actually, no, because it, it doesn't work in brackets. It just works like a draw. Okay. I reckon the final the final will be between Bayern Munich and Manchester City. I don't think Manchester City will win their maiden European or Champions League trophy. I think the signing of Holland gets it over the line for them. I think that's what the signing of Holland was there to do, to win them the Champions League, and I feel like it will drag them over the line and win them the Champions League, although Bayern will be very good, no doubt about it. Of course, Liverpool contender, Chelsea will be a contender, no doubt. PSG will be a contender, and of course, Real Madrid. The reigning champions will be up there, no doubt. But yeah, Bayern City final... I think City will get the job done. I just think Holland is that is that player to um to just drag them over the line in that scenario. Top goal scorer and other like let's just go player of the tournament. Let's go with I'll probably be like Thomas Muller or something just from out of nowhere. But I reckon player of the tournament will go with we'll, actually we'll go top goal scorer first. I feel like that's easier. Top goal scorer will go with Holland. I just feel like it probably will be him. A player, a player of the tournament it probably will come from City, but I, I won't go with someone from City. Player of the tournament. Let's go Sadio Mane. Why not? Why not? Sadio Mane, I feel like he'll be the catalyst for Bayern Munich. He'll obviously playing plays up front, kind of in this pseudo 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3 system that um, Bayern Munich are uh, deploying at the moment. I think Mane will, will be the player of the tournament and... Erling Haaland will be top goal scorer. As we move on away from the Champions League and move on to some transfers that have happened over or are going to happen um, in the coming days and have been announced midweek, let's start with Wesley Fofana to Chelsea. Now, before I actually touch on the transfer itself, what is the bloke doing? Um, he's been very public about his disapproval and discontentment um, at Leicester and really wants to come to Chelsea. So he's been doing inst- stories and not pl- not training and all this stuff, which, I mean, a little bit of a red flag coming in from a Chelsea perspective because I, you don't want, like, these these brats, as I, as I call the Bamiyang, um, in your squad. But talent-wise, I think it's undeniable as we bring up his FB ref scouting report. Once again, pinch of salt. It's just a good summary. And also, he only played 810 minutes. Last year, so of course with that ACL injury. So once again, pinch of salt with all these stats, please. Um, yeah, aerial aerials one very good, can carry the ball very good, very good with the ball at his feet, and defensively just solid, just just really solid. He'll play in a back three, so he doesn't really need to be exceptional. Um, he he will slide in quite comfortably alongside Koulibaly and Thiago Silva. Allows that depth with because um, obviously Chalaba is now staying, which is. Good because apart from Shalaba, Chelsea literally have Aspilicueta and Reese James um, and Cucurella, which is good. This will, of course, allow Reese James to play as that right wing back, which he is meant to be playing. He's not a right centre back. Um, so, yeah, I think the best probably defence that Chelsea could put out is Koulibaly, Thiago Silva, Fafana, Reese James, Ben Chilwell. I just rate him a little bit more than Cucurella at this stage. Um, but yeah, it allows depth. Cucurella can play left centre back as well. Reese James can play right centre back. It's a necessity for Chelsea. Um, as and as we bring up his, his average average positions, his scouting report one more time. 
He has a lot of the attributes that Tuchel wants. Dribbles completed, progressive carries, and passes and pass completion rate. All very all all good enough for the Thomas Tuchel system, which um is yeah, which will so he'll fit in perfectly. Nothing to really worry about there in that regard. Um yeah, I'm not really sure what the what the figure is floating around with. Um, if it's, I don't know how much millions, how much, how much millions, how many millions, um, a week or, um, the transfer fee will be, but once again, money, who really cares? It's, it, it doesn't exist. Money in football doesn't exist. So who cares? And another reason, another explanation or another kind of example of money not existing in football is Anthony to Manchester United, a hundred million pounds. That is ridiculous money, utterly ridiculous money. And, while it's a good signing, a hundred million pounds is just bonkers. He'll slide it on that right wing. He'll he'll be the number one choice right winger. Has to be the number one choice right winger if you're spending a hundred million pounds on him. And he occupies that position similarly to Riyad Mahrez in a sense. He likes to hug the touchline, but then cut inside. He doesn't really occupy the half spaces. He Tugs the touchline, but you gets on his left foot and really drives kind of inwards, kind of like an L-shaped. Hugs the touchline and cuts in at like a ninety-degree angle. Um, yeah, I think this the the more players that Ten Hag gets from from Ajax and from his style of football, the better it is. Because with Ajax last season, Anthony was given that freedom on that right-hand side. As they focused their play down the left, he was given that freedom on the right-hand side to have a lot of space and to be one-on-one with his defender quite a bit. That's where he's best suited, and that's where he's able to show his class when he's one-on-one, when he's got space, when he can do his little tricks and his little step-overs and his little twinkly toes. That's when he's best. Um You'd want to see a little bit more goal contributions from him. I'm not really sure how many he had last season, but if he's if you're putting that price tag on him, you want to see a little bit more output for him. But I think this will be a good signing for for United because I just backed Ten Hag, and uh, like I said with the um, Casemiro signing last week, I think this one well the opposite to what I said with the Casemiro signing last week. This is a um, Eric Ten Hag signing. This is a signing that has been approved by him and that has been chased by him and ticked all the boxes by Ten Hag. So, and there's no doubt when I say that. So, um, yeah, very positive. Very, very positive signs for Manchester United as Anthony's a good player and they finally address that winger issue that they've had for a long, long time. Now they just need a... What do they even need now? Probably another central midfielder. Um, and maybe another defensive midfielder as well. But yeah, finally United are signed to make some progress in the transfer market. And they probably need a striker as well. But another team, another team that has identified a striker issue and that has got it is Newcastle. They've obviously signed Alexander Isaac for ridiculous fee. It's something like $70 million. Now, this is probably the first signing that they've overpaid for which is actually pretty good considering that they signed Byrne, Botman, Grimaresh, these other players. So, um, yeah, Isaac didn't have a great season last year. Bucket loads of potential, physically capable, technically capable as well, good finisher, um, experienced at, at the high level playing at Sociedad and, and these other clubs. Obviously played for Sweden in the Euros last year. So, yeah, I, I like this signing for Newcastle, a project player. Maybe not a project player, but a player that they can kind of build with and like progress their their kind of stocks with and, and really get up the legs with he'll he'll grow with Newcastle is probably the point I'm getting at. So um yeah, like the signing for, for Newcastle. It's a pretty good, pretty um 
one of the ones that kind of came out of left field. I thought they would have gone after someone like a Tommy Abraham or someone like a um, Dominic Calvert Lewin, but um, no, they've gone. They've gone big. They've gone Isaac. They've got one. They've gone to one of the best young strikers in Europe. So um, yeah, massive tick on my end for Newcastle. With although in saying that. He didn't have the best season last year, so we'll just have to wait and see. I do think his game style adapts well to the Premier League, so I don't think there's a big issue in terms of him transitioning um, from from whatever league he was playing into to the Premier League. I think his game style suits the Premier League's physicality. So, um, yeah, they're my thoughts on those three signings in a pretty quick fire rapid, quick fire manner because we've just ticked over 40 minutes. So I want to wrap this up pretty quickly. Let's touch on the two 9-0 results. Although I don't really know what to speak on about it because they're just two anomalies. Um, Liverpool killed Bournemouth and Andrew Postacoglu Celtic killed Dundee United. Um, I think with nine nils, it's kind of like... How do I describe it? I feel like I'd rather lose nine nil than five nil, in a sense, because... 9-0 kind of seems like this result where it's like an, an anomaly, like a statistical anomaly that's like everything went wrong and for us and like everything went right for them. And if you play that game a thousand more times, it will never end 9-0 again type thing. Like one, a one in a million result type of type of scenario. So, um, yeah. let's. I think 9-0, it's funny. Southampton have... Southampton fans have had the best weekend of their life. Um, finally getting over the fact that they lost 9-0 two seasons in a row, which was fucking so bizarre. But, um, yeah. 9-0 twice in a weekend. In two, Celtic and Liverpool. Two, two teams that if you were to bet any... If two teams that if you, if you were to kind of put a bet on winning 9-0 would be paying the shortest odds. Um, just because they're both teams that can just turn it on in a in a flash and scores a lot of goals quickly. So um, yeah, two nine nil was quite funny. I didn't watch the Liverpool game because I was watching Chelsea, and I watched the Celtic game and was laughing um, halfway through it. And also in the Celtic game, there was one minute stoppage time in the in the in the second half, even though it was four nil at half time. That was utterly bizarre. I think the I think the the fourth official was just like, all right, let's just get everyone home. Let's not make it ten. Um. I can't even remember when the last ten nil happened. Is nine nil like the ga- is like is nine nil kind of like the like the stop, and then you have ten nil being like the really difficult like no one I can't remember the last time someone's hit double digits in a game or one ten nil. Fuck! I hope it happens this season. Imagine it happens this weekend. Imagine imagine if Bournemouth win nine nil. I doubt it. I don't know who they're versing, but um. It would be it would be quite funny. Let's see what they're versing. What are the odds of them winning nine 0 They're versing Forest away, so they're a chance. I doubt it'll happen, but they're a chance, and it'd be it'd be fucking hilarious if it happened. But um, yeah, two nine nils, quite funny, very entertaining. And Postecoglou's men are going all the way. Put it that way. Um, put it in the bank, I should say. Um, yeah, let's touch on our final talking point before we get. Before we go on to who went in two-footed, it was it's the poor Pogba thing. Now this is I think the, I just saw this saw this this morning. So basically, poor Pogba is being blackmailed by his brother and some of his childhood friends. Now I don't want to touch on this too long because I just don't really I don't I care, but like it's not really 
it's not it's not what I want to cover on this podcast. Put it that way. But um, yeah, I just don't. I just don't. I just. I mean, it shocked me. I hope everything's all right. I hope everything gets sorted. But um, yeah, being a professional footballer these days, it comes with its perks and comes with its cons. Um, and yeah, when you when you're rich and when you've had a lot of spotlight put on you and a lot of controversy surrounding you these things could happen which sucks but um hopefully everything gets fixed hopefully everything gets resolved i think that's probably the best way to describe it i hope everything gets resolved and everything can calm down the correct authorities get involved etc and everything gets sorted by the time we speak this time next week as we move on and as we finish up with who went into footed it was Basically, for those who haven't seen the the previous episodes, let's just go through the week of football. Who did something daft, funny, um, whatever. Just you know, you know what? Like who went into footed? Who did something daft, funny, dumb, idiotic, stupid, whatever? Now, I was actually gonna go with the older shot managers, um, the older shot managers, kind of post game interview or like pre game interview, but that was actually from January this year, so I can't use it. Um it came to my timeline this this week, but which pissed myself. Just go on like I can't remember. You'll you'll be able to find it. If you just type up older shop manager um interview, it'll come up on Twitter. It's it's hilarious. It it's so David Brent. It's so funny. Um I was gonna go with that, but that was from January this year, so I can't use it. So I'm actually gonna go with the the thing that the the thing a thing that happened in the most in the game that just happened Tottenham to Forest Neil, and that was Richarlison doing some keepy uppies, doing some tricks, and then getting absolutely flattened um, by a Forest player. Yeah, I like both aspects. I like the 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 shit houseery of the starts just flicking it up and doing keepy uppies in the middle of the pitch to waste time, and then I also love the. If you're gonna do this, I'm gonna crunch you and kill you. I love I love both of those um both of those kind of things. I like the the cause and the effect. I thought it was great when I saw that. It put a smile on my face because it's quite bizarre and quite funny. But um yes, that was who went into footed. As we move on and as we finish up with the preview of the week, some midweek Premier League games. Um, so I'm definitely not gonna get up at four thirty to watch Chelsea versus Southampton. Put it that way. Um, Liverpool versus Newcastle is probably the biggest game in the midweek fixtures. Uh, Merseyside derby, Everton, Liverpool, early kickoff on the Saturday. And then you have any other interesting games? Arsenal versus United. So a battle of the who, a battle of the what was the shit teams. Now Arsenal are actually quite good and United are kind of good as well, surprisingly, because they beat, they beat Liverpool. Which I, I called on this podcast, by the way. I said they're either going to win 2-1 or lose 5-0. And they won 2-1. So, there you go. And, um, yeah, the Champions League occurs this time next week. If that makes sense. Like, I'll speak about the Champions League first round. First games this time next week. But, um, yes, thank you all very much for watching. I appreciate you guys sticking around, like I said, at the start of the podcast, at the start of the episode. Make sure you subscribe on all the socials. Follow me on Twitter. It'd be greatly appreciated. All the links are in the description of YouTube. Um, notification bell, like the podcast, subscribe. All the audio platforms, all the good stuff. It would mean the world to me. So, um, yeah, stay well, stay safe. See you guys next time. Speak soon. Goodbye.